Thomas H. Palmer was an American educator who wanted to encourage his students to do their homework. And in his teacher's manual, he penned a little jingle that has been applied broadly to all sorts of undertakings across all sorts of disciplines ever since. Here's a lesson you should heed. Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. In golf, it's called a mulligan. Step up to the tee box, the grand vision of what you intend to do there, and take a mighty swing at that ball and send it into the woods or into the water, or you miss it altogether. Maybe your gracious playing partners, or maybe you just take it upon yourself to declare, I'm going to hit a mulligan. You take another ball and you tee it up. Another chance without penalty to get it right. Childhood games is called a do-over. You swing and you miss the kickball and you immediately call for a do-over. Or you get hit with a dodgeball way too early in the game and you say, do-over, it's a do-over. It always amazes me how, how kids allow for do-overs. They just sort of stop and say, okay, and, and start again. And then at some point, kids become adults. Stakes get higher, and the game is life. And we realize, yes, there are some things that you will get second and third chances at, but there are also some things, some choices, some decisions that can't be undone, can't be redone. A do-over is not an option. This kind of where Israel finds itself having failed God miserably and in need of a do-over, but not sure yet if that will be a possibility. At the risk of being the spoiler, I want to tell you in advance, it would be possible. Not because of the greatness of Israel, but because of the greatness of we move into chapter 34 in our study of Exodus, we will see that the God of unbearable glory is also the God of abundant mercy, who forgives and restores. Father, we set ourselves under your word this morning. We ask you by your spirit to open our ears and our eyes and our hearts to receive all that you want to say as you speak to us from your truth. Jesus' name. As we pick up our text for this morning, we find Moses on behalf of Israel trying again. It's the second time that he's met with God on the mountain to make a covenant with the Lord. That he's carrying new tablets up the mountain shows us this, this trip is a second chance of sorts. Another, another opportunity for Israel to get right with God. It has the markings of the previous meetings. It is formal in the sense that God has said to Moses, present yourself to me. It is sacred in the sense that, again, no one is to come near the mountain of God's holiness. And we see that Moses is eager to make this journey to meet with the Lord. He rises early in the morning to begin. And when he arrives at the top, we look at verse 5, the Lord descends to him in a cloud. Now that's a small detail but in some ways a significant one. 
that no matter how high you or I climb in our pursuit of God, if we're ever going to connect with him, at some point he still has to come down. Riken calls this infinite condescension. This manifestation of God's goodness, his willingness to condescend in order to meet with us and to be among his people. And of course, the most amazing example of this is the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God who became man and lived among us. As one writer put it, the Son of God who departs the throne room of heaven to visit us in the garbage dumps of earth. In other religions, mankind strives to make his way to God. But in Christianity, God knowing that we cannot make it to him, comes down to us. And in coming down, he makes a way for us to live with him forever. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting how God sometimes answers prayers. He, he is good to give us what we need which is not always what we want, which is not always what we're asking for, but he is good to give us what we need. Tim Chester in his commentary, Exodus for You, writes, Moses asked God to show him his glory. He wants to see God. He wants a visual image. He wants to know what God looks like. That's what Moses means by glory. But instead, God declares his name. Instead of a description of the way God looks, we get a description of the way God is. God is not known through a visual image. He cannot be pictured. That's why you cannot make an idol and say, this is what God is like. God is known through his word, which reveals his nature. And here in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God describes himself, as Reverend Child says, in terms of his attributes rather than his appearance. So who is this God of glory? The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These are some of the most famous words in the Bible. They are repeated in many places. We might not recognize that they come from Exodus 34, but they're all through the Scripture. And their repetition attests to their centrality to our understanding of God. Some have called these words Israel's confession of faith. These words tell us who God is, what God is like. Have you ever wondered who God is and what God is like? Most people do. I wonder, though, if we could agree that if there is a God, which most of us believe here today, but not everybody does, right? You know that. Not everybody believes in God. But if there is a God, and that he has revealed himself in his word, which, again, we here tend to believe, but not everybody does, could we agree that we should form our understanding of that God from what he says? Can we agree that it is not up to us, or within our power really, to define God? 
or to imagine God, or to fashion God in our liking. You see, that's the tendency, that's the temptation, that's the thing we do, that's the problem between God and Israel. They have fashioned a God to their own liking. They have abandoned the true God. This is what you read about in Romans chapter 1. talks about the reason that there is enmity between mankind and God. Is that we have this tension to create our own gods in our own image and then worship our own creations instead of worshiping the true Creator, capital C. It is not up to us to define God. It is not up to us to imagine God. It is surely not up to us to fashion God in our own liking. But rather, what we ought to be doing is submitting our opinions and feelings about Him to His Word. If we are to know who God is and what God is like, what better source to inform us than God Himself? In our text for this morning, what we have is what God the Lord says about himself. These are the attributes, not all of them, certainly, but five of them, that constitute his glory. These are the things that make God glorious. These perfect qualities are who God is and what he wants to be known for. And they are therefore worthy of taking some time to explore. The first thing God says about himself is that he is merciful. God is merciful. A commonly accepted understanding of mercy is that it, it is to show compassion or forgiveness towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. So mercy in this way is holding back. Mercy is not delivering a consequence that is deserved or due. When a convicted person, for instance, asks the judge for mercy at sentencing, he or he is acknowledging guilt, but asking for a lesser punishment than what would be right to impose. And God is merciful this way, in that he is willing to restrain his hand from delivering what is deserved. He keeps us from getting what is deserved, because if he didn't, as Psalm 103 points out, no one could stand. If God would count iniquities, if God would count our transgressions and judge us immediately, no one would be able to stand. In other words, no one could live. So God is merciful this way. But there's more to God's mercy than just this idea of his holding back his wrath. This word merciful has a connotation of sympathy, and it's translated in other places as compassion. So to say God is merciful is to say that he is a God who genuinely, genuinely cares. He is, as the writer of Hebrews would go on to say, one who can sympathize with our weakness. He's not aloof. He's not apart. He cares what's going on in your life. The old hymn writer asked, does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong, when for my deep grief there is no relief? Though my tears flow all the night long. Does Jesus care when I have made a mess of things? Does Jesus care when I have misstepped? 
Does, does Jesus care when my, my life is in chaos and a lot of that is because of my own doing? And when I become aware of that, I become heartbroken and I become grieved, but I know I can't undo it. I can't fix it. Does Jesus care? Then he answers, oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. The days are weary, the long nights dreary. I know, the hymn writer says, I know my Savior cares. He's right. This is what the Bible teaches. That God is merciful means that his heart is touched with your grief. He is mindful of our frailty. He sees our struggles. He knows how hard it is for us. And he has compassion on us. The scripture uses the word pity. He has pity on us. He relates. He gets it. He knows. And yet he, he delights to give us good and perfect gifts. And should we stray and realize Realize what we have done. Realize our true condition. Realize our fault and turn to him. He will not turn us out. Think of the father in the parable of the prodigal son whose boy had sinned greatly against him. And yet, what did he do? He waited and he watched and he hoped his son would return. And when his son returned, he saw him at a distance because he was looking for that day. And he ran to greet him. And he welcomed him back. He is a merciful God. Psalm 103.13 says, The Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He is merciful. And he is gracious. God is gracious. What is grace? B.B. Warfield said, Grace is free sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. John Stott said, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Jerry Bridges says, Grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against Him. We might think of that as reaching downward to people who are not reaching to Him. We could find any number of definitions of grace from kingdom scholars throughout the years, all of them would have this same common denominator. All of them would speak about undeserved favor. Grace is when God freely gives us something we don't deserve to have. And that God is gracious means he's willing and indeed does bless us to give, to give us these things. He gives us these gifts, gifts of forgiveness, gifts of salvation, gifts of eternal life. Things that we cannot earn. They're not merited, but they are offered by God to those who will believe. Many times, simply to those who would ask. James gets after us, you do not have because you do not ask. And then sometimes he says you ask with the wrong motives. But you have to ask sometimes. God is the one who gives good things to those who don't deserve them. God is the one who gives us good things that we don't deserve. God is merciful, God is gracious, and God is slow to anger. The King James Version says that he's long-suffering. Today we might say that God is patient. Aren't you thankful this morning for the patience of God? I know I am. 
What that means is that God doesn't have a hair trigger. Maybe you do. Maybe you have a quick flashpoint and you get angry real quick. But that's not God. Praise the Lord, He's not easily set off. He does get angry. The Scripture teaches us that. But it takes Him a long time to get there. And unlike some of us who take a long time to get angry and when we do get there, look out. When God does get angry, He doesn't lose His temper. Theologian John McKay explains this quality of God. He says, The Lord is reluctant to act against His creation, even when it is in rebellion against Him. He waits long to give the sinner opportunity to return in repentance. But He is not forgetful, and He will not condone sin. At a time of His choosing, He will act decisively against it. This character of God that we hear and see in Exodus is echoed in the second epistle of Peter, chapter 3, verse 9 where an explanation is given for the alleged slowness or the accused slowness of the return of Jesus or the day of the Lord. And Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach for Every moment that Jesus does not come back is a moment of opportunity for someone to come to Him. Every moment that Jesus does not come is a moment of opportunity. For someone to come to Him before the time of choosing His path. Before somebody is either for Him or against Him, and that is it. God is patient. God is slow to anger. God is patient. And God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. How many of you have ever had a well that has run dry? A few of you, yeah. That's not a pleasant experience, is it? Those of us who've had wells that have run dry are probably even more in awe of a spring that just keeps bubbling up over and over and over. We don't have the water that we need, and yet over here it just won't stop. We've known many such springs in, in our region over the years. There's that spring that used to be accessed all the time in Stratton's Field in Hancock. Then there was one in North Ellsworth at Boggy Brook. And years ago on the Surrey Road, which is my stomping grounds, the place to get fresh water was Cushman Spring. A black pipe out of which the water simply flowed and flowed. Day and night, whether your jug was under it or not, the spring produced clear, cold water, abundant water, plenty of water. It never had to be rationed. So think of God's steadfast love and faithfulness this way, pouring out of Him to us, never running dry, never having to be rationed used to that kind of love. We're not used to that kind of love. We're used to fickle love. We're used to unpredictable love. We're used to conditional love. If you do this for me, I'll do that for you. If you don't, I'll withhold that. For... We're not used to this kind of love. We read about God's love and we think, okay, God, give me a little piece of love. I'll try not to use it all at once. We ration stuff. We're used to limited supplies. 
But God's love is abundant. He is abounding in goodness. He's not going to run out of it, okay? Abounding in steadfast love. It's, again, steadfast love. There's a qualifier here. This is the Hebrew word uh, kesed. The co covenant love, a committed love. Again, not that fickle, unpredictable, conditional kind of love that you used to. It is steadfast love. This phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord, it's all through the Bible. Uh, Psalm 5, 7, Psalm 6, 4, Psalm 13, 5, Psalm 17, 7, Psalm 18, 50, three times in Psalm 25, Psalm 26, 3, Psalm 31, 7. I just stopped there. Not because I had to, but because I can't stand here all day and run, read numbers. Truly, it's all through there. What is, why do you think, why do you think it's in here so much? The steadfast love, the steadfast love, the steadfast love. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that. We don't believe in that naturally. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercies never come to an end. They are new every God has promised to love us with an abundant love that will never cease. He will always love us. Matt Chandler said this, and I think he's paraphrasing Tim Keller. He says, you're far worse than you think you are. But he loves you far more than you think he does. And that's the gospel. Not only is God loving, but he's faithful and true. He says that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which can also be translated truth or truthfulness. And that means we can count on him. We can be confident that he keeps his word, that he does what he says he will do. And finally, for our purposes today, we see that God is forgiving. The word translated forgiving comes from a Hebrew word. It's a beautiful word picture in a way that means to lift, to take off, to take away. When God forgives, he's lifting, he's lifting this off of you. He's taking it off of you and he's taking it away, right? I think again in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he separate our transgressions from us, right? He takes them that far away. When God forgives, he lifts the weight of sin and guilt off of our shoulders. And we all know that weight, don't we? We all know the weight of failure. We all know the weight of transgression, of choosing the wrong thing, of going the wrong way, of hurting people, of hurting God, and what that does to us. And sometimes we carry that around for a long, long time. God knows this weight. He understands this. Gaither wrote 53 songs before he wrote one that you would recognize. And the one that you would recognize was his first one that made it. He touched me. And in that song, he says, describing the human condition, really, shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt, and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me. Now I am no longer the same. Sin puts a weight on us. 
And the way out from under that guilt and that shame is confession. And we will touch on that in a couple of weeks. But just in case you're not going to be here in a couple of weeks. Know this, that you don't have to carry the weight of any sin you have ever committed. You can have that sin forgiven fully and completely. You do not have to carry that. You confess that. You call it what it is before God. Don't have to excuse it. Don't have to justify it. It doesn't matter how bad it was that you want to call it something different, but call it what it is and ask the Lord to forgive you for it. He will. Because that's what the cross is all about. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Jesus didn't go to that cross for most of the sins. Right? Jesus died on the cross bearing our sins. And if you believe that he died for you on that cross, then your sins are crucified and paid for there. That's it. That's done. Move on. We waste too much time in life carrying guilt we do not need to carry. And regret for what we have done. And sometimes regret for things we have left undone. And yet God wants us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt. That he is a God who forgives. He is a God who lifts this burden and takes it away. To be even more clear of what he means by this and, and what he does. God breaks down his forgiveness into three different categories. We can be even clearer now about what and who he forgives. The first, as we read through the text, is that God forgives iniquity. The word translated iniquity means perversity. To make crooked, it means to turn aside from what is right and good. It's kind of a lot of what's going on in our world today, right? We've taken right and good things and we have twisted them. We have perverted them. And we are calling them okay. Things that are not okay. That's the first sin that God will forgive. Second, we see that God forgives transgression. This has a little bit more of a willful bent to it. This, the connotation here is of rebellion or revolt. That's what the Hebrew word means, or the root word at least. Transgression is, we understand this, the defiant choice we sometimes make to leave what is right and do what is wrong. A lot of times we think, well, I understand that God can, can overlook my faults and my mistakes. But when I flat out defy him, why would he, why would he forgive that? When I know what is right and I do what is wrong, why would he forgive that? That's my choice. That's on me. I don't deserve to be forgiven. This is not about what you deserve. This is about what God will do. None of us gets what we deserve or no one could stand. It doesn't matter the category of your sin. Here it says that he will forgive transgression. That means he will forgive your rebellion. He will forgive when you turn him on him, willfully walk away and come back. Thirdly, we see that God forgives sin, which here means offense. It's from a, a root word that means to miss. It's kind of where we get that idea that sin is to miss the mark. And the general category here, we would call that moral failure. So look, God forgives when we pervert his ways. 
forgives when we defy his ways. He forgives when we miss his ways. God forgives sin. John Piper puts it this way. He says, God forgives sin and not just some kinds of sin. For those of you who feel that there is a category of sin that is beyond forgiveness, please submit your own opinion and feeling to the word of God. The reason God used all three Hebrew words for sin here is to show that all sorts and degrees of sin are forgivable. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He piles them up to make plain what he means. There are no categories of unforgivable sins. The only sin that is unforgivable is the sin that is unrepentable. I don't believe that's a word, but it, we know what it means. If you can repent and turn from your sin, you can be forgiven. As much as it might seem, I'm not here this morning standing behind this pulpit trying to convince you, even though I wish I could. Some of you won't believe it. I am here standing behind this pulpit trying simply to proclaim it. Take it or leave it. This is what God says about him. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. This, my friend, God worth knowing. And there is much more to him than this, as we could see in the second half of verse 7, for instance. Lord willing, we will get there in a couple of weeks, but for now, know this. Leave knowing this. The God of unbearable glory is also the God of abundant mercy, who forgives and restores. I wonder if you are in need of forgiveness this morning, if you are in need of restoration in your relationship with the Lord. Join your heart with mine as we